Well, good morning, Oak Ridge family. I must confess to you, I've been watching a lot of TV lately. And what draws me to watch TV is when there are some amazing things that are happening in the news, and much of it is not good. What a month it's been. First of all, this huge uh, eight Richter scale earthquake in in uh, Mexico that uh, shook all of southern Mexico, including Mexico City, and caused so much devastation. And then we watched as uh, Hurricane Harvey bore in on Texas and inundated the Houston area with so much rain and caused flooding and devastation in that uh, very populated area of the country. And then this bad girl called Irma coming across the Atlantic, hitting the Caribbean, and devastating various islands. 90% uh, of some of these islands was just wiped out as far as the housing was concerned. And then barreling into Florida, and going straight up that uh, very populated area from, from uh, right down in, in the, the Keys at the bottom, right up to the top, and uh, causing terrible, terrible devastation all the way up. And uh, the newscasters, day after day, hour after hour, were calling out to the people and saying, be warned, be prepared, get out of the way of trouble if you can. The disaster is coming. Sounds very prophetic to me. Because uh, that's what prophets are all about. They're all about warning people of trouble to come. So we've been uh, engaged in a series here at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. We're just beginning this series on the minor prophets. And each one of them is sounding a call, a warning, uh, to be prepared for the things that God is going to cause to happen in this world. And uh, I've been studying Joel, and it's my my uh, happy lot to be able to talk to you about this minor prophet. Only three chapters long, so the sermon can't be that long, right? Just got three chapters to cover. And his theme is the day of the Lord. We're going to get to the day of the Lord in a minute, but I want to talk about Joel. His name means something very precious. Joel, Jehovah, is God. That's what it means. Very powerful name, Joel. <clears throat> and the time of his writing is kind of not determined because uh, we can't really pin him down to a certain date and a certain time of history. We know that he, he wrote after the great uh, King Jehoshaphat because there's a mention of this king a mention of a valley that is named after this king in Israel. And uh, Jehoshaphat died around 848 B.C. And so Joel comes after Jehoshaphat. But we don't know when. And so it kind of lends a kind of timeless quality to this man's prophesying. Because there's nothing that he mentions in the text that really uh, is uh, of historical significance at the time. 
There was a locust plague, but then there are locust plagues all over the world and at various times. But that was the occasion of his writing. So really there's a timelessness to Joel. And his, his uh, warnings and his entreaties could be applied to any time. His work, well, he was a prophet of God. He's a prophet of God. And as a prophet of God, he was obligated to speak God's words to bring warning to the people and also encouragement, but surely a lot of warning. I'm reminded of the airplane captain who came on the intercom to announce uh, uh, something uh, in a long flight that people were on. And the pilot comes on and he says, uh, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news for you. And the, the good news is we're making great time. And the bad news is we're lost. Well, the prophets gave better good news than that. That God had times of blessing for the people. That were the blessings that were going to be poured out upon the people that were in store for them. And God certainly had his prophets announce blessing. But he also had them announce the bad news. And people don't like to hear bad news. I don't like to hear those bad things that uh, the, the TV is reporting. And uh, the closer it gets to me, the more concerned I become. There were some loved ones that were in the path of that storm and down in Florida, and we were very concerned for them and praying for them. It caused lots of distress in my soul. So the prophets, because they gave bad news, were not very popular. And in fact, if, you know, it was, a, if it was something that they were paid to do, they would probably get danger pay because, uh, lots of times the prophets were not just spoken against, they were acted against, and the prophets sometimes lost their life. So not very popular work. What about Joel's theme? The day of the Lord. This is, mentioned five times in the text, the day of the Lord, in these three short chapters. And I'm just going to read the verses for you. Five times he mentions this theme. Chapter 1, verse 15. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 12, the day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful, who can endure it? Verse 31, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. So what is this day of the Lord? Well, we're gathered on a particular day, and the Bible calls it the Lord's Day, and that's every Sunday morning. It's Resurrection Day, the first day of the week. And in Revelation chapter 1, John was, uh, was listening to God and hearing from God on the Lord's Day. But it doesn't mean just any Sunday. Sometimes we use this expression, 
when we meant when we mean uh, the, the that, that there's some great thing that's happening in your life or in my life and and uh, I was talking to my wife at breakfast the other day and I said can you imagine if there was such a day as the day of Jim Rennie and she she said there is a day it's your birthday and I said well what about the other 364 days and she was silent on the rest of the matter she she didn't really say who the other days belonged to well, every day belongs to God because it says in Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So it really refers to every day. But the day of the Lord is something very specific, not a Sunday, not just every day, but a very specific time. And I'm, I'm, I offer this definition. The day of the Lord is a time at the end of the age when God brings great judgments on the world, followed by a time a blessing. And we know now something that Joel did not know at the time, and that it, it surrounds the great event of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some judgments that happened in the past were a partial fulfillment of that day. And perhaps the great locust plague that Joel is talking about, we're going to hear about in a minute, was like the day of the Lord. It certainly reminded Joel of what was coming in the day of the Lord. And there were other ter- terrible events that happened to Israel that were like the day of the Lord. And they were kind of like partial fulfillments of the day of the Lord. But what we note is that, is that there's no looking back to the day of the Lord in the scriptures. It doesn't say in any particular verse, this was the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is always viewed as something future, something that's coming, something that's really going to be the grand finale of time. Joel is an action book, full of action, and uh, written by a man who knew Hebrew very well. He he was really a a great Hebrew writer, regarded as one of the, the best Hebrew writers, and he was writing action and action genre when he wrote his book. Just like some of the action movies that we go and watch in the theater. And the action centers around three armies that are invading the land. Three armies that are invading the land. And the book is neatly divided. There's three chapters and there's three armies. So in Joel chapter 1, you get an invasion of locusts. In Joel chapter 2, you get an invasion of an army called the army from the north. And in Joel chapter 3, you get an invasion by all the armies of the world. Now, first of all, in Joel chapter 1, there's an army of locusts that invades. How many people have witnessed a a locust plague? Anybody? Anybody? All right, somebody has, has witnessed the locust plague. Uh, as I've read in the news, there, uh, with regular occurrence, locust plagues uh, occur across the world. There was one in Russia not long ago. There was one in the Middle East. There was one in Africa. And in these hot, dry countries, the locusts multiply, the grasshoppers multiply at a great rate, and, and then they just surge upon the land and destroy the land. And one of these 
armies of locusts invaded Israel at the time that Joel was writing. This was a real-time recounting of what was happening to the land. We have an invasion of locusts, and all the crops are being eaten up. There's a darkening of the sky as millions upon millions of these little creatures fly onto the fields. When they settle on the fields, it doesn't take very long before they have decimated all living things that are growing in the field. They even attack the trees. They attack the, the, the bushes, and everything is denuded by the grasshoppers, the locusts. The crops, the trees, even the bark on the trees is eaten. Not only that, but along with the locust plague was a severe drought. They were wanting for water. And there was dryness all across the land. Because of the dryness, there was fires that were spontaneously being ignited across the land and burning much of the countryside. So you have this fiery trial that's going along with the locusts coming upon them and there's no water. What was the result of all of this? A very severe famine. Because it says in chapter 1, verse 16, has food not been cut off from us. Now, that's a double negative. What he's saying is, the food's gone. The food's gone. There's nothing to eat. And people are starving. People in Canada don't know much about famine. We're, we live in a country of plenty. When I was in Zambia, there was a famine in 1978 when uh, we lived in, in Zambia and food was very scarce, the crops failed, and uh, what supplies would normally come in that we could purchase from abroad was blocked because there was no coming and going from South Africa at the time. The, a war was beginning and, the, and the, the borders were blocked. So we were left just trying to scratch together whatever we could to eat. Most of the time, we ate pumpkin. And pumpkin is not just something... For, for Thanksgiving where you make pumpkin pie, you can, you can use it as, as a main course, you can use it as, as a dessert as you want, if you want. You can eat it for breakfast. Tell me, I've had enough pumpkin in my time. When we did get flour, you took very, very good care of it because the flour was precious. And sometimes the flour had weevils in it. Well, that didn't stop us from eating the flour because we were hungry. After all, it's protein added. And sometimes what we would normally throw out of the flour, sometimes the flour coming on trucks from the, the copper belt, it would have some diesel sloshed over it. And uh, I've eaten bread that smelled of diesel. It, it actually gives extra energy. And then some of it was, was contaminated because it was sitting close to the, the washing detergent. And I've eaten bread that smelled of washing detergent. No offense to my wife, this is all she had to work with, right? It was funny, after you ate the bread that was contaminated with washing detergent, you kind of blew bubbles out of your mouth as you were... <laughs> but that's what it's like living in a famine. And then Joel declares this in chapter 1, verse 15. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. 
Joel declares that this invasion is by the hand of God. And I'm going to tell you this. Everything that happens in the world happens by the hand of God. Because God's in charge of everything. It's not like God wasn't paying attention and somehow the grasshoppers multiplied and he just didn't didn't keep, keep enough care of it and tried to, to help the people, but, but it got away from him. Nothing of the kind. The Bible said the destruction was by the hand of God. And then he calls the people to repent and to cry out to the Lord for mercy, because just as by the hand of God he brought the locusts, he can destroy the locusts as well. That's chapter one, the first invasion. Chapter 2 is the second invasion, and it's, a fa- it's called an invasion by a northern army. And uh, although they're called locusts, there's some features about them that really don't add up to just locusts. And, some, and so the commentators are divided on what this invasion really is all about. It could be an, an army of men coming from the north. If, if Israel was invaded, it was invaded by northern armies, Syria, Assyria, Babylon. They all came from the north to attack Israel. So it could have been an army of men. And the feature that distinguishes the army in chapter 2 from chapter 1 is, is that they weren't attacking the fields per se. They were attacking the cities and they were attacking the houses and they were causing great fear in the hearts of people. Now, usually a locust plague is a disturbance that causes us disgust and causes us some hardship, but it doesn't cause pale faces and, and people horrified by what's happening. That's what is being recorded in Joel chapter 2. So perhaps it was an invading army or something else. Something else. Joel is not specific. But what he does know is that this invasion is orchestrated by God himself. It says in chapter 2 and verse 11, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. So in some way, you see, my God not only controls nature, but he controls the armies of the world, and he controls the movement of men, and, and time and tide is all under God's control. And when he allows, great armies are formed. And they can venture out to destroy other lands. And when he doesn't allow, those armies are stopped in their tracks. This is the power of God. And that's how Joel saw it. The hand of God is in this invasion. Again, the people are called to repent. And God answers them and restores both the land and the people and after he brings the trouble, he pours out a blessing. That's chapter 2. We're getting through it quick. Chapter 3, the third invasion. The third army. And now it's big time. It's not just locusts in a field. It's not just one army invading Israel. Now he talks about a confederation of armies from all the nations of the world gathered in a place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the name means something. It means God judges. The valley where God judges. And as the record goes, God destroys all of these armies. This picture is taken from 
that movie, The Lord of the Rings. The, the last in the, in the series of The Lord of the Rings is the Battle of the, far, the Five Armies. So what we see is a picture that, uh, is, that, that Hollywood made to depict five armies coming together, all battling at one time. Now, just multiply that by the scores and scores of the armies of the world and put them all together in one place and you'll get the feel of how big this battle is. But once again, the hand of God is supreme because it says in chapter 3 and verse 2, as it says in chapter 3 and verse 2 of Joel, is that God is the one who calls the nations to gather for war. Now, they, they've got it in their mind, we're going to go to war. We're going to build an army. We're going to advance. But perhaps what they don't know is that God is calling them, just like that. You come from here. You come from here. You come from there. You gather here, and we're going to fight. And God destroys all of these multiplied millions of, of uh, armies, and our soldiers and, and their armies, and he accomplishes a great, a great and mighty victory. And following that, there's peace and blessing for the land and, and, and for the people. That's the end of the book of Joel. But what I want to show you is this. This is not just a prophecy of something that is lost in time and we read it with interest and we say, well, isn't that interesting how the history unfolded back in the day and how God moved and we can take some moral lessons from it. Certainly we can take moral lessons from history. But what I submit to you is that the book of Joel is more than just ancient history. The book of Joel, with its three armies and three invasions, as, as I see it now, serves as a template, serves as a, as a, as a, as a, uh, a preview for the book of Revelation, the final prophetic book of the Bible, the, really the summary book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And uh, as, as uh, Chris was mentioning watching a movie, Joel is sort of like the preview for a movie. It's called a, a trailer, right? A trailer. It's not something you pull behind your car. A trailer is, is, a, is a movie preview that gives vignettes, gives, gives pictures of what's happening in the movie to interest you in, the, in, a few, in a couple of minutes so that you will be enticed and attracted to watch the rest of the movie. Those who've gone to the movie theater have seen these trailers. All right. It doesn't show the whole thing. It just gives you scenes that are there to spark your interest and say, whoa, I really want to watch that, or I don't really want to watch that one. The book of Joel, I submit to you, is a trailer for the big blockbuster movie that is coming, and it's called The Revelation. The Revelation, a big blockbuster movie. It, but it's not a movie. It's not a Hollywood production. It really is future history. It is what God is going to do in the future. And it's awesome. So we're going to look at Joel for a few minutes. 
And we're going to see how it is a trailer, how it is a preview. Okay? Go back to Joel chapter 1. Remember, that's the locust plague. It says, the fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you wine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. And it's famine. Then you see that there are four crops mentioned. Wine, oil, wheat, barley. And you go to Roman, Revelation chapter 6 and you see the first series of three judgments that sweeps across the earth in the book of Revelation. And the first series is called the seal judgments. And the third of the seal judgments is this. Famine. It's not something that just happened in Joel's time. It's something that's coming. There is going to be famine. It says, then I heard what sounded like a voice saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Wheat, barley, oil, and wine. The same things that Joel mentions in chapter 1 of Joel is mentioned here. And note that it's in short supply. So short that you're going to have to pay a full day's wages, whatever you make, for one loaf of bread. One loaf of bread. Just enough wheat to make a loaf. And that's going to cost the full day's wages. That's famine. And that's coming. And then Joel chapter 2. And he starts in Joel chapter 2, the second series, of of the second chapter of Joel. Verse 1, he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. A large and mighty army is coming. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. This is this weird army that we don't know what it is. And it says they have the appearance of horses. doesn't say they're riding on horses. That's kind of weird. They have the appearance of horses. These are the army. They look like horses. That's kind of interesting. They rush upon the city. They're not rushing upon the fields. They're not rushing upon the vineyard. They're rushing upon the city, and they're rushing upon the houses, and they're attacking the people. They climb into the houses. Every face turns pale. There's a weird thing going on in Joel chapter 2. These aren't just ordinary locusts. You look at Revelation 8, and it gets even more weird. First of all, it starts out by saying this this is a series of trumpet judgments. Now, you don't have to know all of this, except I want you to get the connection between Joel and Revelation. I want you to see the connection. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, blow a trumpet. And in Revelation chapter 8, it says there's going to be a series of seven trumpets that are blown. And just as in Joel chapter 2, it says fire is going to be before them and fire is going to be after this horde that is is in Joel chapter 2. It says hail and fire mixed with blood are hurled down upon the earth and all the green grass is burned up. And then it gets really, really wild. It says in chapter 9 and verse 3, it says out of the smoke from the abyss comes out on the earth uh, these these locusts who were given great power like that of scorpions. 
Not just your ordinary locust, not just your inoffensive grasshopper. These guys stained. I had the unfortunate experience of being stung by a scorpion. I got up in the morning and I did not check my shoes before I put my shoes on. And one of these guys had snuck into my shoe overnight and, and, uh, when I started, uh, walking on the way to work to the hospital that morning, I started to feel a lot of pain in my heel. And sure enough, there was the scorpion and I had been stung and it was painful. So I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I've been stung by a scorpion. I don't want to repeat the procedure. It says that the scorpions are going to sting mankind over a period of five months. And it even says they're going to long for death because of the pain. This is, this is really bad stuff. Now it also says this. The locusts look like horses. Look at, read it in chapter 9, verse 7, if you wish. For sake of time, I'm just giving you the, 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 the verses. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. Power to torment people. These are the only two places in the scriptures where it says locusts who look like horses. Joel chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 8 and 9. I think there's a connection somewhere. See, because I think Joel is giving us the preview of what's happening in the judgments of the book of Revelation. Evidently, they are demonic beings released by God's permission from wherever the abyss is to torment people with pain for five months. And then you have Joel chapter 3. And if you thought Joel chapter 2 was kind of difficult to swallow, you get to Joel chapter 3, and this is what it says. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side, swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe, trample the grapes for the wine press is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness, multitudes in the valley of decision. So, what is the Revelation counterpart? Oh, it says in, in Joel chapter 3, the sun and the moon will be darkened, the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem and the earth and the sky will tremble. The Lord is going to roar when all these nations are gathered. We go to Revelation chapter 14 to 16, and the third series of judgments in the book of Revelation are, the, are called the bowl judgments. And it says in chapter 16, demons go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. The great day of God Almighty is the great day of the Lord. This is the big one. This is the big one. This is the day of the Lord. It's the day of God judging the world. And I remember as Lou talked to us about Psalm chapter 2. All the nations of the world conspire against the Lord and against his anointed one. Come, let us break their bands asunder so that they do not rule over us. The nations mount in opposition to God and God says, okay, come, let's fight. And then he defeats the armies of the world. Seated on a cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Just like Joel chapter 3. God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reap the earth. 
In Revelation, it's God's chosen one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits in judgment on the earth and reaps the earth. God has given judgment, all the power of judgment, to his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, to be a person on that day who realizes that throughout life they oppose Jesus Christ only to see him as the grim reaper, only to see him in judgment. I hope that none of us here in this room has ever that sad thing happen to them. The Lord Jesus is surely a judge, but he's a savior today. He wants to save you. He does not want to judge the world. That's the last thing he ever wants to do. He wants to save the world. But the seventh angel, uh, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne, and there's darkness, just like in Joel 3. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. It's the Lord Jesus. And he declares when things start, and he declares when things are done. And he says, okay, this is the end. Those who oppose me will be defeated on this day. And following his words, it is done. There was flashes of lightning, thunder, and a severe earthquake, just as it says in the book of Joel. My friend, this is not past history. It's not buried 900 years before Christ in the book of Joel. This is coming. Joel is just the preview. The day of the Lord is coming. So what we're going to do, what do we, just like the, Newman's, the, the, the newscaster said before Irma struck, you've got to prepare, you've got to get ready for the day of the Lord. And the first thing Joel says in his book in chapter 1 and verse 5 is wake up. I didn't put in the full sentence. It said, wake up, you drunkards. Drunkards. I didn't want to put that on the people of Oak Ridge this morning. Uh, and uh, so I'm not going to, I'm just going to say wake up. But what is the intent of saying, wake up, you drunkards? He's not just talking about people who are addicted to alcohol. He's talking spiritually about everybody who isn't paying attention to the Lord and is otherwise occupied by the pleasures and the enticements of this world. The New Testament talks often about people being drunk. They're not drunk just with wine or with, with alcohol. They're drunk because they're so caught up with the things of this world that they forget the heavenly things. They forget God. They forget that God is to be reckoned with. And the day of the Lord is coming. So he says, wake up, you drunkards. And then he says, this is how to prepare. Repent. Just like Joel said, chapter 1, chapter 2, Joel calls the people to repent and to have a deep repentance, not just a superficial one where you go through the motions. He says, rend your heart and your garments. Deeply repent before God. Get honest and confess your sin and ask the Lord to forgive you and turn from your evil ways and the Lord will bless you. Then it says this, return to the Lord your God. Return to the Lord your God. He says, the one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I've said this before, my favorite verse, at least for the last three or four years, I change favorite verses from time to time. 
But my favorite verse in all the Bible is Romans chapter 10, verse 13, that says, the one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the Apostle Paul quoting Joel. And Joel just got it from Jesus, got it from God, right? And this is the promise of the Lord. You call on my name. Didn't you just love that hymn that we sang about the beauty of the name of Jesus? It's not just a beautiful name. It's the all-powerful name for the ages. The name of Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And when I call to the Lord, in the name of Jesus, there's salvation. In the name of Jesus, I am saved. I'm delivered. It's wonderful. I was going to put... Uh, a, a little vignette on YouTube, just a little movie about some Filipinos in a, in a, in a, in a village in the Philippines, and, and they were having a little church service, and, and suddenly they saw that a terrible tornado was approaching the village. You can watch it. Jesus saves people from a tornado in the Philippines. And in their, in their, their, their tremendous distress, they called out to Jesus. They called out to Jesus, and for, for a number of seconds, they're all calling on the name of the Lord. And this tornado, which is on the edge of the village, and the funnel is right there, just lifted back into the sky, and they were saved. Watch it. I, I, I believe that at the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, everything, everything submits to that name, including nature, including the, the demonic spirits, including men. Men are going to bow before the name of Jesus. Powerful name. Return to the Lord your God. And then a beautiful part of, of Joel, and beautiful part, a beautiful part of the gospel message is that when you turn to the Lord, you will be mightily blessed. It says in chapter 2, God is going to pour out a wonderful blessing of his spirit upon you. All who receive Jesus receive his spirit. And just as at Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, the spirit came and was poured out upon those who were calling on the name of the Lord. God's spirit will be poured out upon you when you trust in the Lord. And he'll give you peace in your heart. He'll give you joy. He'll give you fulfillment. He'll give you a purpose for living. And he'll give you eternal blessing by that spirit. What a wonderful blessing. What a wonderful God who gives such blessings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little book of Joel. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, as wonderful it is, as it is, it's just a preview of what's coming. We know that our God is going to judge this world. And we know that our God wants to bless all those who call upon his name and come to him. And those who bow to the king, those who submit to the sovereignty and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus went to the cross and purchased our redemption so that, that, so that salvation is just freely offered to those who come and trust in the Savior. What a wonderful message of salvation. Help each one of us to receive it today so that we'll be, we will be prepared and ready for the day of the Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.